as a person who loves books and um, has spent a lifetime immersed in various ways with books, I uh, couldn't be more excited to have this, uh, this talk tonight from what I think is probably everyone would agree the, the preeminent scholar of the book as a, as a cultural artifact and as an object. Um, uh, Bob Darden's career uh, in some ways is in three parts as a, um, as a successful student, a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford as a uh, briefly a newspaper journalist, um, as a uh, professor of history over many years at Princeton where he won a MacArthur Award for his work. And then um, as the head of Harvard's libraries where he was distinguished not least for his um, uh, creation of a vast digital uh, reservoir of knowledge and accessible reservoir of knowledge, digital reservoir of knowledge. Um, as, a, as a child and brother of journalists and as a at least fledgling journalist himself, um, Bob's been interested from the from birth in how information gets to people and how it should get to people and how people want to get the information. Um, and so I think um, it has led him into what in many ways you would think a Harvard graduate would be less interested in than an MIT graduate, which is the mechanics of supply chain management, as we would say. How do you make things? How do you move them out to warehouses? How do you get them from warehouses to people who are going to um, who are going to sell them out of the sellers in turn, make them available and, and get them to people. And sometimes how do they do that when others would rather the books weren't being distributed or the knowledge wasn't being disseminated. Um, so I think this is a great uh, topic and, um, and a topic of, uh, to me, uh, enormous interest and it's really wonderful to have Bob here tonight uh, to talk about his book, the title of which is right in front of me. Uh, I keep wanting to say the Great Cat Massacre, which to me was one of the great <laughs> book titles, but um, um, this one is Pirating and Publishing, uh, The Book Trade in the Age of the Enlightenment. So with that, Bob, let me turn it to you. Thank you very much. I'm uh, delighted to be here. I love the Athenaeum and its fellow members, its libraries. Um, I should... I'm sorry, we just lost Robert. Give us one second, please. John, can you tell our lovely audience about the Athenaeum while we're waiting to get Robert back online? Sure. So the Boston Athenaeum is a wonderful cultural institution established in Boston in 1807. We are a library, a cultural center, a, uh, a museum, a place where people gather to um, explore ideas and um, and to explore them together. And we're looking forward very much to being able to welcome everyone back to the building. The building is um, open again to members um, at 10 and a half Beacon Street. Um, and uh, and soon we, we hope to be um, able to have events like this back in the building too. Um, but uh, in the meantime, um, while we're waiting for um, Professor Darnton to return, I am going to share my screen and I'm going to show you just a few things that I've found in the process of, well, there's the Athenaeum to start with. I'm going to share a few things that I found in the process of um, uh, welcoming Professor Darton's talk. So there is the cover of his book, which uh, we'll hear him talk about shortly. And then we're going to skip a couple slides down. And uh, as, as 
as Bob and I talked about, um, and as I read his book um, about uh, piracy in the age of the Enlightenment, I was very curious to see what I would find on the shelves of the Athenaeum. And so here are um, four titles that really stood out among a surprisingly large collection of 18th century French books. And of course, I, I knew already that we had a, a great set of the Encyclopédie of Diderot and d'Alembert and all their associates. But here is um, an edition of Candide printed in 1759 by Monsieur le Docteur Rafe. Uh, by Voltaire. Of course, he did not use his name on the title page. This was, uh, this was a pirated edition printed in the same year as the first edition, um, but this one was probably pirated and printed in Paris. Next to it um, is a copy of Rousseau's Julie or uh, La Nouvelle Héloïse, the Lettre de Deux Amants, um, we have only one volume of this particular three volume set. It was printed in Amsterdam. library um, at the Athenaeum, we, we have the largest uh, collection of Washington's books in any one uh, location. And it's, it's uh, fascinating that he actually had two, two books by Rousseau, this and the uh, social contract, both in French, whereas most of his books were in English. So uh, unlike Jefferson, who found French uh, an easy thing, it seems like this was, this was something that, that Washington uh, worked, had to work at a bit. Next to that is the Système de la Nature. The title page says it's by Mirabeau, but Mirabeau was dead in 1770 when this was printed. This is actually by Baron Dolbach. Um, the, uh, the Enlightenment thinker, the philosophe, um, and it's an atheistic work and a highly influential one. Wonderful to have it at the Athenaeum. And then finally on the far right, uh, Abbe Reynal's Histoire philosophique et politique, um, printed in Amsterdam in 1772, another pirated edition. Um, the, the book was originally published in 1770. And uh, this is one of the books that uh, was printed over and over again, as, uh, as uh, we'll hear as we get into, um, into, the, uh, into the talk. And uh, let me just check in with Victoria. Have we, have we reached um, Professor Darnton? We are having a very hard time finding him. So if you guys just bear with us a couple more minutes, we're really trying to get this, this to get uh, moving on. So thanks, John, for your patience. Good. Good. Well, I, I, uh, this, this, this feeds into my nefarious schemes. I was not expecting to get to show you all of these slides. And so we have a few more fun things to show you, and then you'll get to hear the story that gives their context. So one of the things that, um, Professor Darton's book starts out with is the idea that French books were printed in Paris by the guild. The guild was a highly regulated uh, members of the guild. The, pr the printers and publishers in Paris uh, were highly regulated, and every book had to be had to be approved by uh, royal censors. And so, this is a book which was published by a Parisian printer by a member of the guild, the, the De Boer brothers in this case, um, this one published in 1777. And in the book, this is, this is Vues sur la justice criminelle. Um, in, in the book at the end, it tells us that it has received the privilege du roi. So this is, this is an officially published book. It has an approbation, an approbation. Um, and, uh, and the, the censor royal, uh, Cadet de Saint-Ville, uh, tells us, I have read this by the order of, uh, of my lord, the guard of Sceaux. So. Um, 
and uh, that he's had the honor of uh, judging it, of looking at the manuscript, um, and uh, and on and on he goes. And he tells us that yes, it's fine, it's okay, it's fine for it's fine for this book to be published. Um, and so that's 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 a that's how how books in Paris were were carried forth. This is a book um, also published by uh, a Parisian printer. This is just after the end of the story in pirating and publishing, um, Les Crimes de Reine de France, The Crimes of the Queens of France. Um, the price of the book was four livres um, and, uh, and, uh, in, in wrappers. And it was published uh, just as the revolution was uh, getting uh, into high gear at the Bureau of the Revolutions of Paris um, with this wonderful engraved uh, frontispiece. This was an expensive book. Um, and on the um, page before the frontispiece, um, there's, there's an, this added statement, sort of a testimonial by the printer, Prudhomme. And uh, I've blown up the text of the top of that page, uh, the price of the crimes of the queens is four livres in wrappers and five livres if you want it uh, sent to you through the post. Um, it's the the book is uh, um, published with this statement that says um, that I, the printer Prudhomme, guarantee that this is not a counterfeit. It's not uh, abridged. Um, this is a book that carries my signature, so you know that this book has not been pirated. So even even after the timeline of of Professor Darnton's story, um, piracy was still something that publishers and printers were were very very conscious of. Sean, we have Robert back, just so you know. Wonderful. So <laughs> let's turn it back over to Bob. I'm going to unshare my screen. Um, and back to you, Bob. Good. Well, sorry that uh, we've had so much difficulty getting through the internet. Uh, I'm talking about the world of print when there were lots of difficulties as well. Uh, so I should try to explain what I'm attempting to do in this book. I want to take a fresh look at the Age of Enlightenment by studying the way books were produced and distributed. Um, now, you could. this is a book about books. Uh, and our, we are book lovers, those of us at the Athenaeum. Uh, on the other hand, I hope it's not too bookish a book in the sense of being stale and academic because the world of books in the 18th century was a very lively place full of rogues and businessmen and wheeling and dealing. That's part of what I want to get across, the atmosphere in which this crucial cultural industry actually took place. So uh, my model in a way is Balzac. Balzac's great masterpiece, The Illusion Perdue, Lost Illusions, is about the world of books that he lived in in the early 19th century. But this same, a similar version of this world, equally lively, existed in the 18th century. Um, but it existed uh, under conditions that we can hardly imagine today. There were, uh, in France, there was no freedom of the press, a lot of censorship. There was no copyright. Uh, copyright existed in England since 1710, but not on the continent. Uh, there were no um, returns on the part of booksellers. So if you're a bookseller, you can't send the book back to the publisher if you fail to sell it. That's crucial today. It didn't exist in the 18th century. There were no royalties to authors. Authors would sell a book usually for very little, and that was that. Uh, there they were just lacking all kinds of institutions that we take for granted, such as limited liability. Publishers are going bankrupt all the time, and then they go to debtor's prison. 
there wasn't even money in the modern sense of the word uh, because people paid with bills of exchange, which were as good as a signature on them. This was not a legal currency guaranteed by the state. So how, under such very difficult conditions, did publishing thrive? Because this is a time of the breakthrough of the publisher as a new being in the landscape of culture. The word publisher uh, was almost never used in the 18th century uh, in England and in France, the French dictionaries claim it wasn't used until the 19th century. I've actually found it used in manuscripts in around 1760, 1770. But the point is the publisher as a specialist who uh, speculates on making books happen begins to emerge at this time. And in fact, there are really two, basically two kinds of publishers at, uh, in the French speaking world. On the one hand, as John mentioned, the members of the Guild in Paris who had uh, a monopoly on the privileges for books, a kind of copyright, and who had won a commercial war in the 17th century in which they wiped out all competitors from the provinces. And then in contrast to these Parisian privileged publishers who produced beautiful books that were very expensive and really for a limited market and elite. In contrast to them, there were publishers in what I call the fertile crescent surrounding France uh, from Amsterdam to Brussels through the Rhineland into Switzerland. There were dozens and dozens of publishing houses who reprinted French books. Now, the French law did not apply to them. So in their eyes, they are just doing business. They're perfectly legal. And as I got to know them, I found that many were pillars of society, good businessmen and responsible types. But there were also more marginal types whom I find especially fascinating, who were speculating on the most outrageous kinds of books. It was in this fertile crescent surrounding France that the entire enlightenment was produced with a few exceptions. Uh, why? Well, because of the censorship. All of the works of the philosophes are printed in Amsterdam and Geneva and so on, and then they're smuggled into France through a vast underground. Uh, so uh, these are the people who brought the enlightenment to French readers and to readers everywhere in Europe at a time when France, French was the lingua franca. Uh, what is the general implication of all of this? It's what I would call democratization of access to culture because the pirate publishers did not aim for this elite audience. They produced cheap books for a down market public. Uh, paper was cheaper outside of France. You had no author's fees to pay. Uh, labor was cheaper. Uh, all of the conditions favored the pirates. And of course they could sound the market in various ways. They had agents in Paris, they had traveling salesmen and above all they had correspondence. So they became experts at finding out what the demand was. And therefore, it's fascinating to study the pirates because you are in contact with professionals who really understand what today we would call the sociology of literature, what the tastes were, what readers actually wanted. Now, the, so these pirate publishers produce any book that sells in France, and they specialize in the Enlightenment but they also produced books in another category, which they called livre philosophique or philosophical books. And those are the kinds that John just showed to you, such as the Système de la Nature. By philosophical books, the publishers and the booksellers meant something specific. They were the most dangerous kinds of books. There were special handwritten catalogs 
with the title Livre Philosophique at the top. They were packed in crates when the books are shipped in under the hay that in which books were, were packed, hidden in other words. They were the most dangerous kind and it wasn't just philosophy. It also was pornography and libel and irreligion. So everything really beyond the pale of legality is another specialty of these pirates. Now, how do they actually operate? Well, one of the things I'm trying to get at is the, the way publishing actually took place and the way publishers thought to get into their mental universe. Uh, the first point to make is that if you think of bestsellers today, one publishing house puts out an enormous number of editions, maybe paperback editions, and just milks the market for all the publisher can get. That was not the case in the 18th century, because as soon as a book began to sell well, all of the pirates began setting type for a new edition, and they all raced to the market at the same time. In fact, the major constraint on piracy was not the French police, although they were supposed to uh, seize and confiscate pirated books. The main constraint was the other pirates because they were cutting one another's throats uh, and in the race to the market, a lot of people lost. So a typical edition is about a thousand copies. It was a risky business and to minimize risks, they used um, a system of exchanges. So John, pretend that you are a publisher in Liège and I'm a publisher in Amsterdam. I produce a thousand copies of Voltaire's Lettres Philosophiques. And I come to you and I say, look, we understand each other, we're allies. I will trade 250 copies of my edition in exchange for my ability to choose in your stock of books the ones that I want up to the, an equal value. This has a tremendous advantage because it minimizes the risk of the publisher who might not sell his entire edition. And at the same time, it, it creates greater variety in his stock of books. So publishers become wholesale booksellers automatically. And that makes their function all the more interesting. But they're, they're making alliances on one side and they're competing on another on many fronts. In following this and trying to show how it actually took place, I find myself running into, well, the tricks of the trade. And that's where I had most pleasure in reconstructing what they actually did. We talk a lot about fake news, fake facts, and so on. There was fakery all over the place in the 18th century book trade. Uh, for example, fake titles. If you have a lot of books in your warehouse that aren't selling, you actually make up a new title, print a new title page, and try to market it. I found many cases of that. Um, there are fake announcements of new editions. So you make an announcement in a newspaper through a circular letter, through a prospectus saying, we are going to print the Histoire Philosophique by the Abbe Reynal. Well, you don't really intend to print it. You're just sounding the demand. And if you get enough response from the booksellers, you decide you will publish it. Or you can mean the announcement as a way to frighten off other publishers who might be considering pirating the same book. In fact, you can even use it as blackmail because you know another publisher is, has, is producing an edition of it and you say in your correspondence with him, we will refrain from publishing our edition if you sell us 200 copies of yours at a bargain price. Um, there is, there are just a hundred things going on. There are even fake companies. Uh, I found a series of letters from a important bookseller in Toulouse called Bergès et Compagnie. Uh, the publisher who received the letters was tempted to send 
books to this uh, Berges et Compagnie because it was a huge order and there was a lot of money to be made by supplying it. But the publisher had never heard of this bookseller and thought we better take um, soundings. They wrote letters to Toulouse and they found out that he didn't exist. There was a clerk in a bookshop who simply made up the name, sent in the order so that he could sell the books and pocket the money without ever paying the publisher. I could go on and on and on. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is there's a kind of Wild West quality to pirate publishing at this time. Uh, after all, there were no legal constraints outside of their own cities, if it was Liège or Amsterdam or Neuchâtel or Geneva, anything went. And so they're selling pornography, they're, uh, as I say, cutting each other's throats. Uh, they send spies into the print shops of others so that they can find out what other, other pirates are publishing. They bribe the workers to steal sheets of the books they're printing so they can get the sheets and pirate faster than their competitors. Uh, there's just a lot going on, um, a, a great deal of uh, duplicity of what I would call the Balzacian kind of the world of lost illusions. So I'm emphasizing that. I mean, there's also a lot of very sober, serious stuff going on because after all, this is how the bulk of the books reach the French reading public. More than half the books that were active on the marketplace during the second half of the 18th century were pirated. I would say it was close to three quarters of the books in actual circulation were pirated books. One contemporary estimate was that there were 30 million pirated editions on the marketplace. I mean, this is the main source of literature that actually reached readers. And it's reaching readers, as I say, in a down market sector of the population with cheaper books. So it's the beginning of something important the access to written culture on the part of people who have been excluded from it. It's the beginning of the world of the mass, the media, if you like. Not yet mass, literacy is quite restricted. Maybe half of adult males could read at this time, but it's the beginning of something truly important. It's conveying enlightenment. It's conveying uh, wicked, uh, sex books and libels. And it's also conveying all sorts of other things, travel books, history books, science books. And the people doing this make a business of understanding what demand was. So by studying their activities, you can come into contact with this wonderful world, which as I say, was Balzacian before Balzac. So I'm trying to bring it back to life and to make it, uh, uh, make, the, make readers, take readers into this fascinating and very different world from the world of publishing today. Why don't I stop there? John, you might have more questions. Great. Well, so, so I'm, I'm going to start off by sharing my screen again, and I'm going to zoom in on two title pages and I want to ask you a couple questions about them. And thank you for that. That, that was such a wonderful summary of the book. The book is a great read. So I, uh, I hope that people run out and, and get their copy soon while the, while the getting's good. Um, so I'm going to skip merrily back up to the top here. And oh, by, by the way, um, uh, Bob, I, I did scan um, the map of the Fertile Crescent so that we could show our viewers. There's France, and there are all the towns surrounding France where the pirating was going on. It, it's, it's sort of mind-blowing when you look at it graphically like this, isn't it? 
Yeah, uh, well, yes. <laughs> and my point is, of course, it was a very dense population of publishers. They all knew one another, they corresponded with one another. So what you're looking at is not just a map, but it's a network. And the way the network operated is, I think, crucial. But back to you, John. Great. And you're, you're seeing the map? Yes. Good. So this is a book um, printed in Neuchâtel in Switzerland. And one of the most remarkable things about your scholarship, and I, I can't underscore this enough for our audience, is that you've actually found the archive of a printing house, of a publisher. And for my period, I, I work in 17th century um, British book history primarily. Um, when you look at that earlier period, there are hardly any archives of printers that survive. Um, so, 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 so much of the field of book history, particularly in looking at how printing and publishing happened in England, but, but in the rest of Europe too. Um, we're, we're left with the output of the presses, the things that the printers printed, but very, very seldom do we actually have account books or correspondence and things like that. And so, and so the Société Typographique de Neuchâtel actually has this incredibly rich archive. This is an example of a book that they printed. Um, and and this, is, this is a pirated book, is it? It is a pirated book. And um, as you say, the archives are so rich, 50,000 letters. Can you imagine 50,000 letters by people, everyone who lived from the book, whether they're printers, uh, workers, or ink makers or smugglers, uh, but especially other publishers, booksellers, authors. In this case, I've read the correspondence surrounding this particular edition. And what they say is um, the public is fascinated with Russia, especially <laughs> Eastern Russia. Uh, travel books are very much in demand. So let's pirate it. Um, and they did. Algarotti was a diplomat, but a traveler, a man of letters. And this was exactly the kind of book that appealed to ordinary readers. It's not especially a work of the Enlightenment or a book that's known today, but it typifies the kind of steady seller that was the backbone of the book trade in the 18th century. So, so this is an example where the Société Typographique de Neuchâtel, the STN, actually puts their name on the title page. Is that typical of, of the, the books that they published? Uh, well, yes and no. Sometimes they put their name on the title page if it, it's something they wanted publicly to uh, exhibit, but uh, usually pirated books do not have the name of the actual pirate publisher, they have wonderful names to indicate the place of publication. Philadelphia is a favorite. Also Cologne, because there was someone called Jean Martel, uh, John the Hammer, who uh, allegedly was a publisher. Uh, they uh, had, there were books published at the moon and uh, or published a uh, hundred leagues from the Bastille, that kind of thing. So they play games with their title pages as well. This book though is very straightforward and the Société Typographique de Neuchâtel, as you can see in the bottom of the title page, was happy to acknowledge its publishing. And in this case, a work that was legal in France, um, unlike this one, which was uh, a forbidden book. Yes, this is a delightful book. It was a terrific bestseller uh, called the, uh, the short title was The English Spy, L'Espion Anglais. But here you can see from the title page, it's supposedly a correspondence between my Lord All Eye and my Lord All Ear in French. And it's full of scandalous gossip 
but also a lot of politics. Because of course, under Louis XV, uh, the, the, the king's mistress was a key player in court politics and a very important person. So you get the inside story, supposedly, about what really goes on behind the closed doors in Versailles. And it's, it's by a man called Pidonza uh, de Merobert, who is not exactly a famous figure in French literature, but he was a very clever writer. Uh, and it, this book just delighted the uh, reading public. Uh, as you can see, it's, well, maybe you can't tell, but it's not a fancy book. It's not done uh, in great style. It's a sort of pocketbook that you could slip into your, uh, the pocket of your redingot, one of the coats you're wearing, and you might even take it out during mass if you were getting bored. And, uh, and all 10 volumes are available at the Athenaeum. Uh, our, our reading room is open again by appointment and you do not have to be a member of the Athenaeum to make an appointment to come read all about Me Lord All Eye and Me Lord All Ear or any of the other books that, uh, that I've shown you tonight or anything else that's in our catalog. Um, so, so it says it's printed in London, is that true? No, not at all. <laughs> London was a very common place that they put on their uh, title pages. There were, there were actual pirates of French books operating out of London. There was even a Société Typographique de Londres, uh, but the bulk of the books th that were pirated came from the Fertile Crescent. Wonderful. So, so in the process of doing your research you've 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 done you've been doing you've been mining these archives for for many many years and you've you've made some incredible discoveries and you've documented um everything from how the encyclopedie was published to um how forbidden books circulated in France and and now this this wonderful investigation and, and into the actual mechanics of the way that pirates operated um, in the publishing world. Um, the how, how how do you go about you, you you didn't just look at the archives of the STN you, you've, you've mined the archives of the city of Paris, of the police, of different, different uh, things like that. How, how, do you, how do you go about even finding relevant things in, in such a vastness? Well, uh, it's, it's true. I've been working in the archives of Neuchâtel since 1965. So that's more than 50 years. It took a long time to read 50,000 letters and the account books and so on. But it was crucial to allow for the uh, problem of representativeness of these, this one publisher, the only publisher whose virtually complete archives have survived from the 18th century. Um, but so I spent a lot of time in Paris. One of the great sources um, are the archives of the Bastille because uh, people are arrested all the time for selling books. Uh, the, uh, the archives contain interrogations of people and the police are very concerned to pick up the trail of books, to reconstruct networks. And so you can do your own detective work following the detective work of the police who were very intelligent. Uh, there was a particular inspector in charge of the book trade called Joseph Demery. Uh, and he raided bookshops, he carried people off to the Bastille, but he also kept track of literature. He did reports on 500 authors who were alive in Paris between 1748 and 1752. It was a kind of census of the whole literary population. And he made remarks, one of them is, uh, this writer, he can write prose pretty well, but he can't handle Alexandrins in poetry. So imagine a cop talking like that about literature. So yes, I've had a great, great fun in reading the archives of the Bastille. 
but also um, the archives in the Bibliothèque Nationale, which tell you a lot about the actual functions of the Guild of Booksellers in Paris, because I'm discussing that as well as the pirates. And uh, a lot of it has to do with politics. There were two great moments in the legislation concerning books, one in 1723 and another in 1777. These were codes that were to determine the nature of uh, printing and publishing, selling books. They're very elaborate and there's a huge process of lobbying before these codes which is very revealing. So I read memorandum after memorandum in which the Lyonnais are saying to the state, these Parisians are strangling us. They are monopolizing everything. Um, you should open up the trade. Uh, but uh, the Parisians reply by saying, no, we have the privilege ever since Louis XIV, we are, we are the ones who are responsible for books. Uh, it's fascinating to follow the process of lobbying and to see the political mechanism at work behind the trade itself. What I concluded was there's a natural alliance between the provincial booksellers and the foreign pirates against the Parisians. Because <laughs> in the 17th century, there was a trade war and the Parisians basically wiped out publishing in the provinces with the help of the state. So the revenge of the provincials is to become allies with foreign publishers to help them smuggle books and especially to sell their books. So one, one of the things I was quite taken by as I read the book was how much you uncovered about the role of women in the book trade. Um, without the archives, there's really relatively little evidence for, for women's roles, except uh, on the title pages of only, only men could own printing shops unless the, the husband died and the wife inherited the, inherited the business. And so you, you sometimes have a title page that says printed by the widow Duchesne or, or, um, or whatever the name of, of the of the widow would be, and and uh, and and in the in the archives you've discovered uh, stories of of women actively engaged in in networking and um, in analyzing the trade and in giving advice to their to their um, business associates. What what what's the most compelling story that you've that you've found uh, of a woman in in the book trade? Well, there, as you say, there were women very deeply involved. Um, in the case of Paris, they could not officially be members of, uh, be masters in the book guild, but they could inherit masterships after their husbands died. And in fact, there's a very interesting pattern. Uh, an established master finds a nice young woman, marries her, he dies, she inherits his mastership, and she finds a nice young man among the workers. And so you've got a sort of pattern at work. Uh, there were a huge number of widows listed in the official documents in Paris uh, throughout the 18th century. Some of them were terrific at business and tough as hell. One was the Verve de Saint who organized raids on the bookshops in Lyon. She organized three raids. She came with policemen, with soldiers, and simply they surrounded bookshops and then they went through all of the books to try to find pirated books, books especially that had been pirated from her editions where she had the privilege. Uh, another woman I found that I liked I'm not too fond of the Verve de Saint, I have to admit, but a wonderful woman um, was the widow Charmey in Besançon, whose husband died, and you can follow the letters as she writes saying, he returned from a trip, peddling books, and he's, he's been very sick, I think he's recovering, uh, the publisher sent some suggestions for medicine, he's getting worse, he dies, 
they help her out in straightening out the books. And then it turns out she's a brilliant student of the marketplace and is makes very intelligent orders, far more so than her husband had done. And she's a kind of sympathetic soul. So I loved following the way she took over the business. There was even a, a woman in Versailles called La Noue. She could barely write her. You have to read her letters aloud and listen to the sounds in order to find out what she's saying. Oh. She's so semi-literate. But she kept secret stock rooms in the Palace of Versailles itself. Versailles was honeycombed with forbidden books. Uh, why? Well, it was near Paris, a good place to serve as a stockroom, but also the court wanted to buy uh, books that attacked uh, famous individuals. And so to follow the correspondence of Madame Lanoue, uh, I found utterly fascinating. So yes, there is a world, this is a world that is not closed to women, although officially it was in the case of the Paris Guild, but women really worked their way into it and were crucial in a typical uh, provincial book business. Wonderful. I'm, I'm going to ask, I, I think you and I could probably chat all, all evening, but I'm going to uh, just ask one more question and then make sure we have ample time for, for our audience questions and we've got a bunch coming in. Um, so, so, so my last question is um, looking at, especially the way you, you frame the book in the beginning, uh, you talk a lot about the development of the concept of intellectual property. And, um, and I wonder if you could talk just for, for a moment about um, what was different then, how that changed during the course of the 18th century, how that mattered for piracy, and, and, and are there implications for how we think about copyright today, which is, is, is a slightly different thing, but there, yes. there are parallels, I think. Yes, there are. And as you know, um, the first copyright law is a statute of Anne in 1710 in England, but there was nothing like that on the continent. It's true that uh, Denmark in 1741 had a kind of copyright law, but basically on the continent, whether it's in uh, German books or Italian books or books of any kind, the, the dominant principle is privilege, privilege in France. And uh, the word privilege comes from the Latin root mean, meaning private law. So a bookseller, a publisher has a kind of private hold on this thing we call intellectual property. But it's granted by the king. Privileges are granted by the authority uh, everywhere in Europe. And so uh, if you look at the debate about privilege, because there was such a debate, the key point is privileges are granted by the grace of the king. And there's even a section in the bureaucracy called la librairie gracieuse. So grace, the notion of the king's will or his good pleasure, as it says in the edicts, is absolutely central. That's very far from the modern concept of literary property. Uh, now, there were people in France and outside of France who are arguing in favor of something like a modern concept of literary property. One was Diderot, and I've had great fun following up a memorandum that Diderot wrote for the police and then for the administration of the book trade, in which he very eloquently argues for lit absolute literary property. He says, the best part of your soul is invested in the literary work. He sounds like Milton in Areopagitica. Um, he didn't convince the police at all uh, because they received their authority from the king. Uh, so yes, there is a debate, but no one really thought there was any absolute uh, copyright. The word copyright didn't exist. The French followed British litigation uh, and there was, there was a famous a trial 
in the case in 1774, which the French picked up on. But it takes a French Revolution to create modern copyright in 1794. Uh, so, uh, and, and what about today? Well, the copyright law today says copyright exists for the life of the author plus 70 years, 7 0. And so that's that the grace that, of Congress that gives us that, is it not? <laughs> that's right. So it means that most books are covered by copyright for at least a century. Uh, almost every book published after 1923 in the United States is covered by copyright, whether or not the author died long ago, and is not allowed in the public domain. Well, don't you think the public should have rights too? Shouldn't there be democratic access to culture? Shouldn't there be a limit to copyright? Well, I think there should be a limit. I think we should change our copyright laws, but we have lobbying that's much tougher than the lobbying that existed in 18th century France. And I'm sure that uh, Disney would not abide the slightest modification in copyright law. So I'm afraid we're stuck with a system that's much worse than our original copyright law, which said that um, the copyright should exist for, for the 14 years renewable once. I rather like that idea. I've written, published a lot of books. I would be perfectly happy if my copyrights uh, ceased to exist after 28 years. Uh, in fact, most writers make nothing from their books uh, after a few weeks or months in the case of fiction. So the interest of the author after that is not to make money because you can't. The interest is to have readers. Uh, that's, what that's what writers really want. Of course, they have to survive. I'm not minimizing that. Uh, but I think that the, the, the interest of readers is being neglected by our current system. And in some ways, the pirating system in the 18th century worked better. <laughs> and, and for our audience, uh, if you're interested in um, finding little known works published in 1925, which have just entered the public domain, we have lots. So come, come browse our shelves. I'm going to, to give you some questions from our audience, Bob. Um, and the first one, this is this is like uh, uh, throwing throwing the pitch right right to you. Um, what role did my hero Voltaire play in this piracy? Ah, <laughs> well, Voltaire um, he wrote best selling books. There's no question about it. Some of his books sold better than others. His plays actually did not sell that well. Um, his novels did. Candide is a great bestseller, and so did his pamphlets, which he called his petit pâté, like little biscuits that he sent out. But Voltaire, uh, by 1770, was a wealthy man. He made his money not from selling books, but from uh, uh, for winning the lottery by a very smart gimmick. Uh, so he was not trying to make money. What was he trying to do? To spread enlightenment to, as in his famous phrase, to écraser l'infâme, that is to crush the infamous thing, which was religious prejudice and in, injustice in all sorts. So Voltaire played with the pirates. And I found, uh, uh, did a, there's a chapter in this book about his uh, last great work, the Question sur l'Encyclopédie, Questions on the Encyclopedia, in which uh, his main publisher, Gabriel Kramer in Geneva, uh, produced the sheets and uh, he would send duplicates of the sheets to a pirate in Neuchâtel uh, so that the pirate could produce a cheap edition and reach more readers. It's a fascinating story. And so you see Voltaire pirating himself. That's just one example. And I could give you others in which publishers actually become complicit in pirating their own books for a whole series of reasons. So yes, Voltaire is on the side of the diffusion of books and 
he's really very happy to cooperate with pirates. And, and the story of uh, the afterlife of Voltaire with the publication of yeah. his works after his death is wonderful. I, I think we should send people to read read the book for that at this point. <laughs> but, yes, but because it's... the booksellers, they got tired of Voltaire producing new editions of his complete works with just a few changes. So I found several letters in which they say, when is he going to die? Uh, because uh, they were just hoping for him to kick the bucket so that they could produce definitive editions of his works that he wouldn't modify. So um, I, I have to read you a question from Terry Bellinger, of course, um, who is a mid, an expert on the mid-18th century English book trade, um, which he says had its problems. But his sense is that by and large, mid-range publishers in London had an easier time of it than their Paris equivalents. Dublin and to some extent, Scotch pirates were a nuisance, but there wasn't all that much of a continental fertile crescent aiming their publications across the English Channel. Thoughts? Well, I agree with Terry. Um, of course, there was a huge, uh, hub, hubbub about a piracy in England. Um, the Irish in particular raided the English book market um, and uh, there were attempts on the part of the stationers company in London to monopolize the trade very similarly to the way the French Guild tried to monopolize it. Um, they sent out riders to try to uh, confiscate pirated books in the provincial bookshops and so on, but it never came to the, um, the, the kind of acrimony and uh, violence really that it did in France. Uh, now, I wonder, uh, it would be great to find the archives of let's say a, an Irish uh, pirate publisher we know quite a lot about them, but um, I think that Terry's instinct is correct or his judgment is correct, namely that piracy was not such a great problem in the English speaking world until the 19th century, when, as you know, uh, American publishers ripped off English publishers without any shame at all. And Dickens, when he went on his uh, tour of the United States, would lecture his public about how they were robbing him because uh, of the piracy on the part of Americans. He was very angry about that. And indeed, he, he lost a lot of money. So we've, we've hit seven o'clock, but I do think we ought to take a few more minutes for questions before we wrap up. Um, and, uh, and we've got We've got more than we'll have time for, so I apologize to those of you to whom we will not get. But uh, but there there are a couple a couple of uh, I think questions here that that your book goes into quite a bit of detail about, and I think it'd be great to to just uh, um, think about them a little bit. Did uh, did writers approach publishers directly? Would this uh, would would um, uh, and 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 did this did this operate differently within France versus outside of France? Uh, yes, writers did. Uh, France is has an exploding population of writers. And that in itself is, uh, I think, a very important subject. And I've tried to actually estimate the number of writers that existed uh, according to a definition of writer as someone who has published at least one book. I think there were 3,000 active writers in France in 1789. Very few of them uh, covered themselves with glory, made a career in literature, were known at all. There was a whole subpopulation of frustrated writers. A lot of them approached the pirate publishers when they couldn't get published in France and tried to persuade the um, the Swiss, the Dutch, the Belgians to publish their manuscripts and even pay for them. Well, the, of course, uh, 
the publishers were not fools and they said uh, absolutely not but then sometimes they get they got drawn into what they thought could be actually a pretty good manuscript there was a particular writer whose name was Guzman uh, he's well known in the in connection with Beaumarchais uh, Guzman had a book uh, or proposed a book that was a kind of political the history of the French constitution, as it was called, that looked very interesting to the, these publishers. He uh, it was to be a three volume work. He uh, wrote the first volume, showed it to a pirate publisher who said, great, I'll buy it. And then of course, Guzman uh, pocketed the money and never came up with volume two or volume three, but he changed its title and sold it to another pirate publisher. And that pirate publisher uh, sent money, failed to get volume two and volume three. And sure enough, Guzman sold it to a third. And finally, these publishers discovered in their correspondence uh, that he'd been duping them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they ceased to deal with him. But that's an example of how some authors who are very marginal types occasionally did persuade the pirate publishers or other publishers to to pay for their work usually though uh, they uh, offered to pay for it themselves because they wanted to break into print and to begin a literary career often they didn't have enough money they didn't pay the bills uh, and i could give you many examples of uh, people who later turned out to be rather important, uh, such as Jacques-Pierre Brissot, the future leader of the Girondists in the French Revolution, or uh, another man who became the Minister of War uh, and was a, uh, an officer before the French Revolution, uh, uh, commissioned or offered to pay the price of, of printing of a book and then didn't pay his bills. Uh, also, the publishers in Switzerland took trips to Paris. Their correspondence from Paris with the home office is fascinating. And the ones I'm studying knew virtually every important writer in Paris. D'Alembert, Marmontel, Morellet, uh, everyone. They had dinner with them. And they thought they could produce uh, cheaper editions of the works of these famous writers at that time uh, because of the better conditions of printing in Switzerland. They got very far in their negotiations, including with Beaumarchais, uh, but it never worked out. So yes, uh, there's a lot to be said about the relations between authors and pirate publishers, as well as authors and established legal publishers. And and I think there there are hints here and there in the book too about authors actually asserting themselves in in the printing process, which was I think not a common thing at, at this time, and and much and 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 much more so today than it than it was then. So it's it's fascinating to see that starting as well. Um, so I think I think last question. And the, and this is this is uh, uh, I know that you you have a future project that you're working on. Would you would you be willing to to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yes, although uh, I mean I'm banging away at a book right now. I've written eleven chapters, but it's a long, complicated book, and honestly, I, I don't know when I'll finish. Maybe in two or three years. Um, but it's not about books. It's completely different. Uh, the working title is uh, The Revolutionary Temper. And what I want to do is to show how, uh, in the case of Paris, I'm just dealing with Paris, between 1749 and 1789, a set of attitudes developed uh, which made the Parisians ready to go over the cliff and make a revolution. Now, of course, they didn't have a clear concept of revolution. No one expected the French Revolution to happen, but I'm trying to show how events, the concatenation of events, and especially the way people perceived events. So it's really a book about collective consciousness. Now, collective consciousness is a tricky subject. Uh, 
I think it's very different from public opinion. There are studies of public opinion, but collective consciousness does exist. We've, we're living in it right now. Everyone has been conscious of a major crisis in our own country during the last 12 months. Uh, and we live through it at particular moments also, such as the death of Martin Luther King uh, or, or, or President Kennedy. Uh, and there were big events that uh, had a tremendous impact on the formation of this consciousness shared by everyone, of course, not just in Paris and the provinces as well. That's what I hope to be able to uh, demonstrate. But until it's written, who knows? I think we'll all look forward to that. Um, audience and I thank you very, very much. I think Victoria will come back on to, uh, to give a couple concluding remarks, but thank you, Robert. This was absolutely wonderful. Thank you. I enjoyed the discussion.